Welcome to Great Minds, and this is our second in-person record. So this is a landmark uh, in the last two years. Our special guest today is the Chief Digital Officer of Odyssey, which is one of the really central players in redefining the audio medium for the modern age. Our guest, their Chief Digital Officer, J.D. Crowley. Welcome, J.D. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be in person. I am tired of the Zoom interviews for sure. You and me both. And with any luck, we'll get the good ambient noise of the fire engines and everything else. Um, 35th Street is roaring back for anybody who was concerned. It certainly is. So, J.D., you uh, school in California at USC and worked as a producer early on at one of the great local television stations in our country, KCAL, out in L.A., which is the CBS affiliate. And being a young guy and a producer in local news, that is a real right into the frying pan type of gig. Can we start our conversation by going back to remembrances of that time? And I'm guessing that you learned some things that stuck with you and that you still use today. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. So before I went to college, I actually grew up in Oklahoma City and I interned at a couple of local TV stations there in the news department. And, you know, once you get bit by that sort of news bug, it never leaves you. And so I, did, I went to USC, was fortunate to go study both film and anthropology there. Great school, great town, you know, insane, the professors and the education that you get and the access you have and learned a ton. But had an opportunity to go uh, to Viacom at the time. Uh, they had just bought KCAL. So it was KCAL and KCBS together as a duopoly. And the great thing about going there is it's a big market. It's a uh, uh, obviously a legitimate operation at scale, but you have the ability to play many different roles and wear many different hats and really learn how to tell stories, really learn how advertising works on the ground from the content side, understand how to how to market uh, content and how to reach audiences. And so it was sort of a great way to get started. And you know, it also, to a degree, sort of lends you a, a bit of credibility whenever you go into any other media saying, you know, I, I did learn, I did put in the work, I did put in the hours, uh, cut my teeth there, and then was fortunate after that to be able to go and work on a national scale in syndicated television, where I spent a number of years as a, as a producer, um, and then worked with branded content side with brands at CBS, built one of the early branded content studios there, and then from there transitioned into digital, which is where I've been ever since. Great. So let, let's dial back, as you said, all the way back to Oklahoma. There's something about getting that sort of foundation underneath your feet of doing those internships in your teen years, working as a producer in a place like KCAL. And I think it sort of gives you the language of almost everything, how the whole business works. Is that what you found that those experiences sort of forged a, a foundation for you to build on? It's absolutely right. I mean, there are some things that anybody who gets to sort of have the pleasure of creating content for a living learns that apply no matter what you're doing, whether you're a, a lawyer or whether you're on the business side or whether you're selling advertising or you're in finance, you know, things like how to tell a story, uh, how to engage an audience. I mean, these are these are sort of foundational things that, um, you know, you get taught in school, but I think being able to spend time on the ground really creating stories, being able to have enough freedom that you can kind of mess up, uh, being in that day and date environment where you're doing 10 shows a day or what have you and, and moving fast and turning out content at a really rapid pace. Um, you know, really lucky to be able to kind of grow up in that environment for sure. And, and obviously that, that happens obviously in our business in audio too. But, um, I would say for anybody who wants to get to a certain level in the business, starting out in, in you know, the trenches, I probably shouldn't call it the trenches, but, but starting out in the newsroom, um, being able to cut tape, being able to write, being able to voice stories, uh, ed learning how to edit and actually tell a story, understanding how ratings work, understanding how the advertising is stitched into the product and what it's sold on. And again, being able to do every job in, in every chair in the studio, I think it's really important. Yeah, could not agree more. And I still look back very fondly. I was lucky to also do quite a few internships uh, before I went to school. I went to Emory uh, and afterwards. And uh, I owe my career to those experiences and the relationships. And, you know, I think similarly, one thing leads to another. 
It's true. And, you know, I know we all try to give back. I know you've done a ton in mentorship and, and opening internships. A lot in our industry focus on it. And particularly now in the environment we're in, the sort of competition for talent, um, you know, folks who've been through, particularly entering the workforce who've been through the last 18 months, like we all have, um, having an opportunity for people to learn. You know, we, we're very particular at my shop. Our interns don't get coffee. They don't, you know, they don't do grunt work. They're there to learn. Um, we learn from them, I think, as much as they learn from us. And it's important to let them get their hands on sort of every, every opportunity. Uh, because again, those formative skills, storytelling, reaching audiences, understanding how every piece of the business fits together, what the advertisers who pay the bills are looking for and how we deliver to them what the audience is expecting. You know, I think that's really important. So we, we try to lean hard into that, you know, even yeah, today. Could not agree more. So you were also, JD, strikes me really early to the whole rise of digital. And when you were working out in KCAL and then moving into your first sort of national job, these were still the early days of digital. And it was sort of the wishbone, if you will, of the old world and the new world pulling each other apart, you must have really keen remembrances of the struggle that many went through as digital was starting to take shape and really take a hold of the business. What do you remember from that time in your career? And did a light go off somewhere and say, hey, I kind of see where things are going. I want to double my bets on a digital future. Because uh, you ended up being one of the leading players and one of the earlier players to the digital game. Yeah, I you know so I think a couple of things come to mind uh, when I hear you ask that. So so first, part of the reason that I came to the audio business a few years ago after spending you know uh, the beginning of my career in video is because I saw that transformation happen in print. I had a lot of friends who were earlier than me in digital who were trying to figure out how to digitize the written word at newspapers and magazines and, and other companies. Um, you know, obviously I lived it at CBS from a video perspective and got to understand, I think video and, and TV particularly did a bunch of things better as it related to, to thinking about the transformation in their business, but still also made a number of mistakes as we all did in the, in the industry and TV still transforming to this day. Um, out of home went through a pretty quick transformation and has, has emerged, I think, really strong, uh, at least in terms of how digitization has impacted and grown their business. And while audio and specifically radio was sort of the original of the mass media, I mean, a couple of stations we own have been around for 101 years. We own the first radio station in the United States, KDK in Pittsburgh, and, and proud of that, um, but was sort of the least disrupted, I think, for a long, long time. And part of the reason that I thought, hey, there's something here, I'd like to go and join this industry is because I figured as incumbents, you know, we and others in the industry are really leading and participating in that transformation and it's not a it's not a pivot per se because broadcast uh, radio or broadcast audio consumption is still incredibly durable will continue to be for many many years to come it's an opportunity for new occasions new experiences new types of content that you can't do in a linear environment which kind of gets my juices flowing right and so i thought you know let's let's not live the mistakes let's learn from what's been done in other industries and let's apply that to audio um, i think your question's right though you know we Video went through a very interesting transformation. Again, did a lot of things right. Uh, dual revenue stream media is different in certain respects than a single revenue stream media and how you transform. In some ways, it's harder, right? Because you're sort of biting the hand that feeds you, if you will. And so I think in audio, our transformation, we've been able to embrace it because technology is further along. And that allows us to develop faster and cheaper, right? Um, but also, our advertisers want to be with us across platforms. And there is no retrans. There's no reverse comp. There's, there's a lack of complication in the business model that allows us to embrace transformation and scale. That's different than print and different than TV, I think, in a really fundamental way. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch because we started Advertising Week in 2004. And the mix of players and sort of where the power pendulum has swung looking at traditional media and newer digital native media is fascinating. And uh, I love the story of radio because it's a story not so much of revolution, but of evolution. And we did a great episode uh, a month or so ago with Matt Gorley, who's one of the early, you know, first to the game on podcasting going back to 2005, 2006. And we talked about the old days of radio when Columbia had the red and the blue and how dominant a medium 
radio was and how progressive it was and groundbreaking. And that's still the case today, just wearing sort of a different uniform. It's interesting, you know, going back to the KCAL KCBS experience, I remember there was a Columbia Square on the corner of Sunset and Gower in L.A., and that building still exists. Viacom, ironically, is back in that building now, and some good restaurants there, too. Um, and I would go upstairs, you know, in the evening shift after the 6.30 news was off before we'd prep for the 9 o'clock and 10 and 11 o'clock shows, and you go upstairs to the second floor, and KNX, which is a station that, you know, Odyssey now owns, KNX was upstairs, and you'd hear them on the air, and there was just something different about the way they did news versus how we did it in TV. It was so much more intimate and organic, yet yet no less produced. And there's a real talent in doing that. I mean, you know, you've been doing podcasting for a while, uh, doing doing a very good job at it. I'm typically in front of the mic, not behind the mic. So, you know, we're sort of playing at this. But people who do this for a living, you know, folks who are on our stations, there's a real art to being able to do things like news radio or sports talk radio for hours or talk radio. So there, there is an intimacy. I, I still think fondly, I mean, you could even smell the tobacco in the, uh, you know, hanging in the hallway paint and in the studios there from, from, from many days gone past. So there's something really interesting and different about audio, I think, as a media and the way it connects. And, and thankfully now, advertisers are continuing to lean in and get more interested. Thankfully, a number of technology companies are leaning in, as are we in the, in the sort of core media space, to new formats, new ways to connect. The pandemic has been difficult, but in many ways, it's helped continue to liberate consumers to sort of audio on the go. Consumers want increasingly social interaction, but they're frustrated with, the, um, I'll say, sort of the available social networks. That's not, that's not everything in terms of social interaction. And the connection of a human voice is so fundamental to what we as people do. And so whether it's social audio on a clubhouse or Twitter spaces, whether it's podcasting, which is sort of the democratization of spoken word audio, whether it's new music artists who are able to finally make a living now in ways that they couldn't, or the biggest of the big, uh, whether it's live events or broadcast radio, streaming, there's so many ways to engage with audio. And that's different, I think, than in other media. It touches people differently. So thankfully, advertisers are recognizing that. And the number of new brands getting on the air and online is just, as you know, is like a rocket ship. Um, and technology is now getting here, right? Now, now there are companies that before would invest hundreds of millions of dollars in video tech for brands and consumers, but didn't really want to go that extra step, take the pictures off. And now all of a sudden that is a really fertile ground and it's great to see that innovation happening too. Yeah, and I think you use the word and I think it's the right word, the intimacy of audio really renders it unique against other media. All right, so we're going to go deep on what's happening now at, and talk about the Odyssey story, but let's just stay back a little bit more. You spent six years working on Entertainment Tonight. That had to yield some interesting moments for you. Uh, it was certainly a, a fun show. Some stories I'll tell on the record and some I'll keep off, but no, that, that was a great experience. I got to work for some really great, talented creative executives and, and sort of learn how to produce at scale. You know, I was telling somebody the other day, I think back to when I was a kid and I'd come home from school and I'd have my homework and my parents would, would put it up on the fridge and they could see what I did today. And then when I went into uh, national television while I lived, you know, 1500 miles away, every night, whatever I would do at work that day, they'd turn on the TV, as would another 12 or 13 million people across the country and get to see what you did. And there's something really special about that. And no matter what we do in content today or in marketing or, or any facet of media, I think it's still really important to remember that sort of fundamental giddiness that you realize what you do gets to touch people's lives. And I think that's really unique. Um, spent many years there, learned how to uh, create content at scale, learned how to push teams to get the highest quality, no matter what it takes, and to deliver it on time. There is something really powerful about having a Groundhog Day job, where the next day you wake up and you get to do it all over again. It makes the problems of today be able to fade away and you kind of sleep well at night. Um, it's a demanding environment from anybody who's worked in day-in-day -day TV, particularly entertainment news. It's a very demanding environment, much like but different than uh, sort of traditional news or, or sports media. And you know, day starts at four o'clock. Uh, we had teams in London and New York and, and LA and 
and other points west and uh and and really doesn't stop so that was a great place to, again back to the sort of freedom to create break things and have messes and and figure out how to put content together in different ways and reach audiences um it was a really special place when i started the show it was on the paramount lot so there was a lot of good uh, I'm I'm an old film buff so yeah, there was uh, a lot of good moments there mag- too. Magical place to be. I love all those old lots. We've been to the Paramount lot, and we've been to the Warner lot and they had Jack Warner's old phone book under a glass case and uh, all handwritten. And I have endless time for things like that. It's great when we um when we were on the Paramount lot, we decided to take the show to HD, and it was the first show in its category that went HD. And I mean, you probably remember what that was like, and we were all trying to figure out how to move to this new technology. And so we ended up, uh, Viacom and CBS had split, of course, and, and Viacom owned the Paramount lot, and CBS had a lot in Studio City. So we decided, rather than re-engineering the entire show, let's move to Studio City to the Radford lot. And that lot also has a great history. Mary Tyler Moore obviously ran for a long time. Uh, Gilligan's Island, the little lagoon was still there. Leave it to Beaver's house was where my office was for a period of time, which was really cool. Um, I I do miss some of those times, uh, just given the nostalgia of it all. Yeah, real romance. So we talked about those internships forging a foundation for you that you built upon. Um, There's also something to be said for uh, growing up and those Oklahoma roots. And there's a grounding, I find, of people that are from the heartland. I've been lucky enough to spend a bunch of time in Oklahoma. The most beautiful sunset I've ever seen no doubt, was in Oklahoma. But talk about that and the experience of then L.A., New York, a little bit different than Oklahoma. I'm very fortunate to have grown up there. Um, you know, I, I come from a line of Farmers and oil workers. My grandfather had a number of jobs. One of them was being a lineman. And even now in the Northeast, we see storms come through and our power goes out. And I see those crews up in a bucket truck fixing the power in the pouring rain at three in the morning. And I think, yeah, my grandfather used to do that. And you're right. It does, uh, it does lend you a sense of perspective that hopefully you can use that as a powerful force in how you deal with other people, um, how you think about audiences and respecting audiences, how you think about the marketers we work with. Um, my, my mom was a, a teacher, special ed teacher for many, many, many years, specialized in autism and a number of other, um, uh, worked with a number of, a number of kids across the wide variety of spectrums. And I'll never be as good a person as she is given that. Um, but you know, it, uh, it, it really does sort of provide some perspective for how you want to treat people. And, uh, you know, I don't always live up to that for sure, but I certainly try. And, uh, and I think that's important when you're working with your teams or you're working again with consumers or with advertisers. Yeah, no, it's a great, uh, it's a great story and a great mix of, you know, places that in many respects could not be more different, but those values that ground you, those carry from place to place. It's true. And then, you know, I, I moved to LA at 17. I, I, I skipped uh, town uh, a little early and, um, went to USC did not know a soul uh, nearby. And there's something really powerful uh, about putting yourself in uncomfortable situations that helps you grow. And uh, you certainly got to kind of have the mental, well, you have to develop the mental toughness in the same way you try to develop physical toughness. And I think that's sometimes underrated. And then when I, many years later, went from the television side, which was a very comfortable job, and doing a lot of great branded content work for brands, and then moved into digital, uh, one of my former bosses, who's now at YouTube, a great friend and mentor, gave me a chance. And as I was telling him uh, a couple of years ago, I, I, looking back, probably would have fired me for sure in the first year that I, I sort of took on a digital job. Um, I did not know what I was doing. I knew how to cultivate audiences and I knew how to create content, but I had no idea how to do this at scale from a, from a sort of internet-connected perspective across sites. Obviously, social media and online video was growing at that time. The portals were big uh, at that time, of course. And... Somehow I was able through his help and others on my team who were awesome to navigate through and ultimately build a business that was pretty successful, but um, definitely failed a lot along the way and and grateful to bosses like him who can give you a chance, give you enough rope and then uh, give you enough support and hopefully make it out the other side. And I try to think about that now too, when I'm working with folks or when I'm in this situation where I think, gosh, I may be a little out over my skis here, but you know what? We can pull up. We can figure this out. Uh, we can consult others who've been down this road, and we can sort of make it through to the other side and learn from it. 
I think that's important. And I think having a short memory also helps. Well, there's that too, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we touched on, and we're going to go back to sort of the whole early to digital notion as we start to build, you know, the J.D. Crowley narrative. Uh, but you were also early in the rebirth of the whole re-rise, I won't call it a rise, but rather a re-rise of branded content, branded entertainment, branded television, and built a property in that genre for CBS. Uh, I love it when people talk about this as a brand new thing. I mean, you go back to, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, hit, hit the wall, win a suit. For sure. You know, uh, back in the day at Ebbets Field. Uh, or the earliest days of media when all the big programs on radio and television, it was the Gillette Cavalcade of Stars and all paid for. Texaco Star Theater and, of course, back to P&G and the soap, soap operas. Soap for sure. But you in the modern digital age really built something extraordinary at CBS, which seems to follow your career uh, consistently. Well, and again, you know, fortunate to work for and with a lot of really, really, really talented people um, who, you know, it was definitely a team effort. We we were doing a lot of, because you have day-in-date shows in the in the sort of first-run syndication business, um, you know, mar- those are really big audiences. And in many times we were reaching 80 to 100 million people uh, on a regular basis. And marketers, of course, won opportunities to go deeper. And so, uh, you know, again, the, the teams that I worked for at the time had already sort of been creating a lot of great brand stories inside these shows on a day-in-day basis, whether it was Entertainment Tonight or Rachel Ray or, you know, our friends over at the Dr. Phil show or Wheel of Fortune in Jeopardy and really doing some great work. And so we decided if we could sort of put a, 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 a moniker around that and create a studio that would create not only those content experiences inside these day-in-date shows that would provide you know, narrative and depth for, an, for a brand that would be longer form, but also scale really wildly, and then start to then distribute those in other platforms, our own CBS Interactive uh, platforms across the company or, or partners um, from a digital perspective, online video perspective, social perspective. And then we eventually started even creating sort of custom programming across our assets for brands. So, you know, CBS was a pioneer in this. Many others were as well and was fortunate to get to work in that space and learned a lot from that. That was sort of learned a lot about digital and about storytelling from brands. I had done it from the news side. I'd done it from the media side, but getting to tell brand stories was an altogether different and frankly, really fun and, and stimulating opportunity. And, and I think that's carried us through now. Every brand that activates at Odyssey on our live events business or in our custom content. Um, a part of our teams do a really great branded podcast business. It's probably one of the leaders in terms of podcasts for brands. And I watch what some of our creatives do. And I think, man, I wish I was half good, half that good at what I did uh, uh, back in the day. But um, but no, I think that I think those people who do brand storytelling are really, really special content creators and was lucky to have been able to do that for a while. Yeah, and the modern you know age and the pipes that we have at our disposal just, you know, as a consumer, it's never been a better time. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, again, going back to the respect we have to have for the consumer, whether you're a brand storyteller or a content creator, whether you're in an ad model or a subscription model, you really do have to have a lot of respect for the consumer and provide value to them. I think the consumer's always been savvy. I don't know if they're savvy or now, or we just understand them better. Um, but, you know, I think consumers really understand. I'll trade off from an advertising perspective. I want to hear that brand message because I may want to buy that product. It may add value. But you better give me something that actually adds value to me um, because that's what I'm ultimately going to be judging you on as a brand or as a content creator. And and there's so much great work going on right now in branded content because, you know, particularly in podcasting but in other media because brands, I think, and, and content creators alike really appreciate the respect you have to have for the audience. Absolutely. So somewhere we make a transition from the video and television world to the audio and the radio world, all within the CBS family. But let's talk about that. Was it a particular opportunity? Talk about that journey from the visual to the auditory. Sure. So I I had been sort of trying to think about what was next for me. I, I had built a business that I was very proud of and, again, worked for and with a lot of really talented people. I wouldn't wouldn't be anywhere near where I am without them. And it was sort of time for me to start looking around and figuring out what could I do next. What could I learn really next? Because I feel like we're always perpetual students, right? And uh, and at the time, CBS announced they were going to spin CBS Radio and, uh, and separate it as a public company. And I was fortunate to get to join as a part of the IPO team. 
Um, the team before me had built a really great digital business as a joint venture between the CBS TV and radio groups and had done a really, really nice job building scale in that business for both the TV and the radio sides of the house. And so when you're going to spin the radio business, you ultimately have to separate this joint venture. And the radio business had to take what was already there, which was a good endowment, and build upon that. And you were already seeing transformation happening in audio in very, very new ways and opportunities to exploit audio locally and nationally and ultimately globally in a different way than I think we thought about digitizing radio stations in the past, right? And so had an opportunity to join the organization. And then uh, as we were going through the IPO process, ultimately the company decided to sell to a company called Entercom. And I was familiar with Entercom just doing my industry research, but hadn't really met the team. Uh, got to meet my now boss, uh, David Field, our CEO, and some folks on the board and the rest of the management team along the way. And just really a great group of very thoughtful folks who think deeply about media, who feel like stewardship of local media and local audiences is really important, and who had a vision for what the combined CBS radio and intercom assets would be. And they fit together nicely, sort of like, uh, you know, uh, hand in glove, if you will. CBS owned uh, a number of stations. News and sports were big for them in mostly the top 25 markets. Entercom owned a number of stations. Sports was big for them as well. And while they owned in the top 25, they also owned in a number of markets, sort of 25 through 50. And so this new combined company would become the second largest company in radio from a revenue and, uh, and a sort of uh, size and audience perspective, really covering the top 50 markets with a number one market share in sports radio and a number one market share in news radio and sort of number one or two in many of the music formats. And the thesis was really around live and local or said a different way really on connecting with communities, whether sort of around the corner or around the country. And so now with this level of scale, we had an opportunity to stay true to who we were in content and storytelling and connecting talent and audiences while now taking advantage of a sort of national scale that, that neither company really had to date, at least from a pure play audio perspective. And as I said earlier, was really excited about all right, what lessons could we apply from those who went before us in print and, and TV and out-of-home transformation as audio begins to expand and ultimately digital becomes a greater part of that industry? What lessons could we apply? And how could we actually be a leader as an incumbent as opposed to kind of chasing a little bit, which I think some of the other industries had done? And it's been a four-year ride now as part of the combined company. Earlier this year, we rebranded as Odyssey. Um, our teams, our marketing teams did a Herculean effort. And, and really, the, it wasn't, uh, what do they say, the sort of the smile line. It wasn't so much a, a, a change of sign as a sign of change, right? Like, we had grown out of our previous brand and were really a new company that had an integrated digital platform in the same way that, you know, Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and HBO Max uh, exist for those companies. We really wanted to lean harder into what technology could do to local radio. And we've done a little bit of that. We can talk about that. We, we then had acquired and built out uh, a, a leading podcast business with a real focus on premium content, deep storytelling, real engagement, hosts that matter, uh, critically acclaimed titles. That's really a big part of our podcast thesis is quality. Uh, we do quantity too, but quality was really important to us because it, it's a part of how we know how to create content. And then uh, we've got some other digital businesses. We, we actually have an agency that we operate. We've got about 3,000 clients uh, at any one given time for whom we are their AOR for digital. A lot of franchise businesses across the country. Uh, and so that's a really great and growing and profitable business for us. And then earlier this year, we entered uh, sports betting space, which obviously is an exciting space in media. Um, you know, given our sports endowment, uh, we're really the only company from an audio perspective that has true cross-platform scale in sports. And we thought it was a natural fit. And so we bought a company called BetQL, which is uh, a place that kind of gives bettors better information, tell you which bets are most profitable to take, but also leans into the entertainment, right? We, we don't just want to bet folks who go deep in that. You also want to be entertained, right? It's like sitting at the, you know, at the sports bar with your buddies. And so we've leaned into that and, and integrated that across content, uh, digital product experiences, our deep relationships with some of the some of the betting operators. And so we've sort of now built this four years later, four prong digital business. And I think we're only scratching the surface at where we're going to head here. So you've got an awful lot of ingredients in that Odyssey jambalaya pot. You've got that mix of local and national. You've got that dominant position that you have in new sports, entertainment, music. 
you've got sort of the way that things have been forever and the way that things are now and are being driven forward in the future, all the digital innovation and transformation. How do you plan your day, J.D.? You've got a huge remit now as chief digital officer. There's a lot going on. You're creating content. I love the pineapple acquisition. I thought that was brilliant. And the work that you're doing creating original podcasts. I was relatively late to the podcast game. I really credit my son for opening my eyes. I've I've tried to. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, unless I'm listening to uh, a, a ball game or FAN, in the car, I'm listening to a podcast. And uh, it really has changed the way that I, speaking as a, just one individual, the way I consume media. Very different today than it was three, four, five years ago. How do you plan your day and how do you prioritize from within that very broad remit that you have? Well, first of all, I have an amazing team who is much smarter and more capable than I am. And so I'm lucky because I get to either block for them or help provide some perspective that they may not have and then ultimately set them up with structure and resources to do what they do best. So you mentioned Pineapple, uh, Max and Jenna, uh, Joel and the entire team at Pineapple is a great example. We're very fortunate to get to work with them. Some of my my favorite moments are when I'm with that team or with our Cadence 13 studio team or we just launched a third podcast studio called 2400 Sports and hiring a great executive team to run that. And getting to sit in edits, which occasionally they let me do every once in a while. And I, I try to provide a tiny bit of value as much as I can. Um, that or they tell me that my notes are good. And then when I leave the room, you know. But, uh, but no, they're great creators. And, and we just try to provide them oxygen and space um, to our sales organization. I mean, our sales organization has just been wonderful at, um, A, helping us understand where the market's going so that our product development uh, can can run a pace of that so that we can hold our technology partners accountable as well. And B, really telling our story with brands and then helping think through how could brands participate in this content. Not just how can I run your ad, we do that too, right? But how can you participate in the content? Um, we built out a pretty big data organization and again, have a great partner in our ad tech and, and data group. Interestingly enough, of all the quote unquote traditional media, radio has more user data than I think anybody else. And part of that is because of the depth of connection and the participation that radio has had. And so whether it's folks calling into our stations, millions of them across the country, whose phone numbers we have and who obviously we can then connect back to other sort of IDs in our device graph, uh, whether it's folks accessing us on smart speakers who are now IP connected and then authenticated across other device points at home, in the car, at work, um, individuals uh, going to our live events. So pre-COVID, we had a really robust live events business. We're just getting back. Did a great event at Pier 17 uh, on 9-11, actually, which was a wonderful Stars and Strings event, uh, benefited uh, first responders and, and military families. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're, we have a sellout show at the Hollywood Bowl in LA. And we, we turn around and our team does a beach festival in Miami, which is a two-day alternative festival. All ticketed events, um, all obviously opportunities for us to engage uh, customers and then use that data to serve them better ads and better reach our, our marketers. So our sales team is just as creative as our content team, which is something I love about, uh, about this business. Um, we've got a, a pretty significant product and engineering team who's building the next generation of the Odyssey app. Um, we're doing a lot to try to innovate the listener experience for folks who want to stream radio. We know that people love radio because it's convenient, it is comfortable, um, it's easy to use. They love that sense of connection and companionship. They love the curation. They know that somebody picked these songs and then somebody's going to talk to them about what's going on in their community, whether that's a local community or a community of shared interests like suffering Denver Broncos fans. Um, and so they love that about radio. So if we're going to ask them, hey, download this app or connect us into your car or authenticate in a smart speaker and stream the station over here, I better provide value because that technology can do it and they have expectations of how to consume content on that device. So a couple years ago, we released uh, what we call Rewind, which is a patented uh, cloud-based DVR for broadcast radio. It's active on our sports and news stations. There's going to be a lot more coming in sort of that, the evolution of that product and how we think about music. Others are thinking about the same thing. So I think we're all trying to figure out how do we boil down the essence and the DNA of what's so amazing about live local broadcast radio keep that soul, and then use technology to further enhance the listener experience, and by the way, the advertiser experience at the same time, so that we're adding value for the customer, and we know that will add business value for us. 
while also continuing to support this great broadcast business we have. So there's no shortage to your question of things to play with, of innovations. There's obviously then new entrants entering the market, the clubhouses and Twitter spaces of the world and others that are, are participating in social audio as we are you know, obviously thinking in that space a lot too. Um, and so in, to your question about prioritizing, I think we have a great team focusing on really our team, which is what matters I think the most to me focusing on our listeners and how could I spend the next hour trying to make a better experience for our listeners or engage more listeners, focus on our customers, I think is really, really important. Um, and I think the prioritization then sort of takes care of itself. Yeah, it's a great answer. And, it, and it's, uh, it's what, a, what a great buffet of things you have to play with on a daily basis. So let's talk a little bit about the brand world and uh, the navigation between agencies and brands. I think we've observed, you know, an awful lot on how the agency part of the equation has evolved. And I think a lot of them are struggling. You know, a lot of the ways fundamentally that folks used to make money have been, you know, that rug's been pulled out from underneath their feet. Uh, the dominance of some of the big digital players and the amount of money they take out of the marketplace. Talk about the brands that get it and talk about how you navigate that very slippery slope between dealing with agencies and clients directly. Yeah, look, you know, what's interesting about our business is we have a number of clients who we address nationally. We also have a number of clients who we address either regionally or locally. And um, size and scale has nothing to do with sales channel. And so those same challenges are very different depending on which sales channel we're operating through. I'll take an example. I mentioned our brand branded podcast uh, efforts earlier. Pineapple's really a, a pioneer in that space. And and interestingly, when they approach a project, and, and it's so fun to watch them work, when uh, Max or, or Jenna or anybody on the team approaches a project, um, the first thing they do is go straight to the brand. So agencies welcome to be a part of that conversation, but they have to get to the brand. And they typically start as a consulting engagement. So they'll go to uh, Portland and meet with Nike, one of their longtime partners, and sit down at the beginning of each season and really think about what's the story you're trying to tell, who are the audiences you're really trying to engage. And they spend a lot of time up front going deep because the last thing any brand wants to do is take all this time and care and investment and create a podcast that nobody listens to. And then you're going to have to try to spin up a whole other big media budget to promote this podcast. And it's still sort of trying to pull people over to this piece of content. And so we feel like if you don't get, they feel like if you don't get the story right, if you don't really understand that there is a story to be told, if you don't craft it in the right way, such that people would listen to this if it wasn't a branded podcast, then there's kind of no point in doing it. It just makes us all feel good. And, you know, it's something we can write down that, you know, we successfully executed campaign X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't really accomplish results. The brand's not going to be happy. They're not going to come back. We're not going to have a sustainable business, right? So it's in everybody's best interest to go deep and put in the time up front. Then once they do that, they take the exact same production process that they would apply to any one of their originals uh, and apply that to branded content work. And that's really important. And again, having to have engagement at the brand level. Nothing against the agency partners. They're great in the equation. We work with them on additional media opportunities to promote the show and expand the message of the show, take that content, cut it down, run it in other venues. That's great. But without having the, the core teams at the brand involved, you're just not going to be authentic in telling the right brand story. And you know, as, as someone who's spent a lot of time around really talented media sales teams, that can take a lot of chutzpah sometimes to say, no, no, we're going to do it this way because if we don't do it this way, we're not going to do We're not your right partner, right? You really need to go hire somebody else. And um, boy, that can feel lonely to say that sometimes. But, you know, when your batting average is, is like what Pineapples is, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty good track record. So that's one approach we take. And we do that when we do activations at events as well. Again, agency partners are a part of that process. But this is really a three-way partnership between the agency, and in some cases, it's multiple agencies, right? PR shop, your comm shop, your digital shop. Um, but the brands have to be engaged directly. Um, you know, I know you, uh, you just did a show recently with uh, the Live Nation team and, and went deep in sort of the same ideas here, right? The brands have to really be participating and involved in these things. Otherwise, they're sort of nice-to-haves, and you should probably just spend that money on working media instead. It's not really attention that I think any of us have to navigate. We're being authentic to our audience. It's our job uh, to stand in for the audience, really, and to be their voice and their advocate in those conversations. And at the same time, it helps the brand when we take that approach. So that's one example of how we deal with it. So let's shift to an area that is, uh, I think we don't talk about enough, and that's how we consume audio, which has changed dramatically. I grew up in a house that was a AM radio house, and my mother loved AM talk radio. 
And I remember as a very little boy, she called into one of the shows and I thought that my mother was a big star, you know, for being on AM radio in our house in Queens. Today, people don't really have radios in their kitchens the way they used to. Um, I still have one of those old little portable radios that when I can't fall asleep at night, I'll put FAN on and, uh, you know, at a low volume in my ear and help me fall back asleep. Uh, but today it's all through the phone. And even often in the car, the way people behave now is they'll be listening to radio, not through the radio, but through their phone and streaming. Talk about how much time Odyssey is spending looking at consumer behavior, technological advantages, and the very fundamental aspect of change of how we access audio. Sure. So, so when you look at consumers across the country, um, the majority of listening time is still on AM, FM broadcast radio. And interestingly, people are usually surprised when you say this, only roughly half of AM, FM consumption time is in the car. So the car is a dominant place where people listen to AM, FM. When you look at all the devices in the car, AM, FM is still number one, two, and three supreme, right? And, um, and again, that goes to that convenience, that habit, that, that sort of durability, that it's really easy. Consumers want easy. We need to make it easy. And there's nothing easier than broadcast radio. Um, the, the other half is out of home listening. It could be in home. It could be out of home. It could be at workplaces. It could be in, in point of sale. So there's a number of different places and environmental locations. And the home is still pretty durable. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously we look at our behaviors from the coast, but when you look at the entire country, the home is still a very durable place, but no doubt technology has added occasions and added places where people are consuming, uh, content. And so smart speakers have become a really important growth engine for us. Um, they're a big place in the car. The, the dominant audio consumed on smart speakers is still streams of broadcast radio. People love their radio and they like to just be able to talk to it. And that's great. So we've spent a ton of time there and we have a long way to go to continue enhancing the listener experience on those devices, you should be able to call in. We're doing that in some markets now. You should be able to respond to an ad. We're doing that with some uh, customers now. You should be able to say uh, at FAN in the morning, Boomer and Geo, who are insanely talented and insanely popular, you should be able to tell your smart speaker you want to listen to this morning's show, and you should be able to decide whether that's live or from the beginning of the show. You can do that in our app now. We want to ultimately make that pervasive in the connected car, smart speakers, your Roku app, your Apple TV app, et cetera. So a lot of work going on there. Doing a lot of work with the automotive industry, as are others in the industry as well, uh, to use their technology to enhance the listener experience. We've also done some strategic investment with the automotive industry uh, partners on attribution for advertisers, because obviously there's a lot of data opportunities coming out of the car, whether you're streaming or whether you're listening to broadcast. Um, and at the end of the day, to your point, audio is pervasive. Audio is still the number one reach media in the United States, and it's showing no signs of abating. In fact, quite the opposite is actually growing. And not only is the broad reach going, 92% of Americans uh, on a weekly basis, but it's also growing deeper in these new occasions. And so I guess long way of saying when we look at streaming, it's typically additive to the customers listening. It's adding occasions uh, in other parts of their day. Same with time-shifted podcasting, which is becoming a really big business for us. Uh, folks want to get back to that first hour that they missed, but they want to do it on their time with control. So now you can do it in the app on Rewind. You could do it in a podcast on our app or in other apps. We want to make it as easy for you to access that content as possible. And so far, it's adding incremental occasions. So a ton of time, a ton of investment capital. And obviously, thanks to our friends on the brand side, there's a ton of interest here as well. And seems like an overall shift to mirror in some respects what smart TVs allow, which is to be able to listen to what you want to listen to it when you want to listen to it. That's right. I think the big difference in TV and radio that sometimes is not as well understood is, uh, and again, saying nothing against my friends in TV, I, I was one for a long time, but the, the, the rapid deceleration of GRPs in linear TV, both broadcast and cable, um, it's still, as far as I can see in the data, is not keeping up with the pace of growth in connected TV uh, and connected video consumption. Video writ large is growing. But remember, audio still consumes, for, for regular audio listeners, which is most of the country, audio still generates 50% more time spent on a weekly basis than TV uh, and streaming video, I think 60% more than social media. So it's still pervasive and dominant. And again, we're adding occasions. So the great thing about our business is broadcast radio is still durable. It's still a super efficient way for advertisers to 
add unduplicated reach. You can't get those GRPs on TV anymore. You can't get them in cable. But now, to your point, through the connected experiences we have, you can add in further targeting. The other interesting thing about local radio, which I didn't understand as well until I got to uh, CBS Radio and then Odyssey, is you know, in the local TV side, as we were talking about earlier, you own one or maybe if you have a duopoly, two stations in a market. And so you're going to try to target those customers on the linear side with advertising by program targeting or day part targeting or things of that nature, day of the week targeting. And in radio, we own, you know, five, six, seven, eight stations in a market, depending on the composition of that market. And each one of those not only has day part targeting, but also has their own cohorts in and of themselves. And broadcast radio still has pretty uh, significant and durable reach with younger consumers as well, far greater than I think when you look at advertiser perception studies, far greater than the perception. And so the great thing is now you can get this really high quality, high impact uh, podcast advertising. I'm going to bring your episode down this week, but eventually it'll go back up. It'll still be high quality and engaging. And then you can get this highly targeted, live, high engaged reach in streaming. And then you can add this unduplicated reach in broadcast radio. And when you put that by together, it is not only efficient, but it's also highly effective for your audio messaging. And our research that we've done shows that it makes your search uh, efficacy goes up, go up. It makes your TV efficacy goes up. It really begins to drive incremental efficacy in all the other working media. Um, and so I think that's probably what's the least understood about allocation decisions in audio today is cross-platform audio is critical, and it also makes your other media work harder. And that's a story that we and others in the industry are trying to make sure that um, those on the buy side can see yeah, and have the data. I think you've got a big, gee, I didn't know that. Uh, story to tell, not only for Odyssey, but for the medium on the whole, that you fuel behavior across media uh, and in many respects lead people to the water they drink from many wells. I think you've got a big, a uh, lot, of, lot of headroom there to educate the industry. Uh, we totally agree. And, and you know, what, we were talking about podcasts and, you know, your son earlier it's interesting. Every time I meet somebody who's not in the industry and what they say, what do you do? And one of the things is podcasting. Typically, the first, second or third thing they say to me after listing their favorite podcast is, and just last week, I bought a such and such because I heard the ad in my podcast, right? And, you know, our, perform our friends in the performance and direct response side have known that for years before there was great measurement in podcasting, which now we've pretty much closed that loop. But before that existed, they obviously have an apparatus that can measure that. And they were... Um, really the initial founding uh, sort of source for podcasting because they knew it worked, right? And now, over the last couple of years, technology and measurement has evolved such that brands can come in and really get to see what the performance marketers have known for a long, long time now, which is that host delivers your message or that message is adjacent inside that podcast content. There is no other highly engaging media that performs quite like it, but it's not enough. It performs much better, to your point, when you add in other forms of digital audio, and more importantly, when you add in sort of that unduplicated reach from a broadcast radio perspective, these campaigns are really powerful and frankly, really, really efficient when you buy cross-platform. And it's also interesting how things have evolved. You know, back in the day, you know, an NBC-owned Thursday night comedy, you know, in the Seinfeld era. I can't really tell you across you know, broadcast, cable, premium cable. I don't really know when anything is on. You know, I know Curb will come back. We all love Curb. And that I assume that'll stay on Sunday nights. But I have an awful lot of literacy about what radio programs are on and when. In the morning, of course, it's Boomer and Geo. And you also know when your favorite podcast is coming out. And, you know, I know what comes out on Tuesday. And I love one of my favorites is Lewis Black's Rantcast. You know, I, you know, love Lewis and he's been a friend of ours. We've had him at Advertising Week. He was actually our first stand-up that we did back in uh, 2006 at Gotham. And uh, that's a different change that people now, they know when their favorite programs are coming on, on Odyssey and across the audio genre. That's a very different behavior than was the case five or 10 years ago. I think that's true. I mean, I think one of the things that, especially given my background and a lot of folks on my team who came out of TV, that we have to caution ourselves against is comparing TV and, and radio or TV and audio, I'll say, too much. There's a lot of similarities, of course, in video and audio, but audio isn't video without pictures, and sometimes that's misunderstood. It means the consumer behavior is not the same to what you're saying, and it means from an advertiser perspective, we have to think about these media differently and how they work and how they perform. So... 
One of the things that one of our greatest producers has said on the podcast side, and it, it always sticks in my head, is when you publish a podcast, first of all, people listen to the data says six, seven, or eight podcasts a week. And that number keeps going up, but it's not like they're listening to 20 a week. We know from our own behavior, right? And so when you're going to launch a new show, the first thing you have to do is knock one of those six, seven, or eight out. And that really kind of gives you a high bar for how good your quality you know, has to be and how engaging your content has to be. The second thing is content that people look forward to. So to your point, you know that on Tuesday afternoon, your show is coming out. And you kind of paint a mental picture of somebody walking out of their office. Hopefully now we're getting back into offices. So they walk out of the office and they're headed out the front door to their car or the subway or wherever they're headed. And whether they've had a great day or they've had a rough day, they put in those AirPods or those earbuds and it's me time now. It's my time. Nobody else, but it's my time. And my show's out. And I can't wait to get out the front door of the office building because I'm going to listen to my show, which drops. And, you know, you see that on YouTube. You have seen that on TV. But there's something really powerful and really personal. The other cool thing about audio that, that I think is probably misunderstood to a degree is we used the word intimate earlier, and I just described a really intimate moment. But it's one of the only media I can think of that is simultaneously intimate and shared. And I think that's really unique, right? You know when you listen to that podcast that you're a part of a community of listeners. You know when you listen to FAN that you're going to hear Vinny from Queens and you're going to hear all the callers and new ones, right? Your mom called in. Like you're all part of this community. It's a shared experience, but it can also be literally sitting right inside your ear canal and sort of the most intimate thing to you. And there's not a lot of other media that I can think of that are both simultaneously intimate and sort of shared communal experiences. And I think that's really, really special. Absolutely. And completely unique to audio. So you mentioned it earlier, but Odyssey is a new brand. Talk about the evolution of Odyssey and the challenge that you had of rebranding in the midst of a pandemic, which I'm sure when that decision was made way back when to go in a new direction from a brand vantage point, who could have imagined the circumstance that you would be launching a new brand under? That's right. We, we sort of, I think, internally kind of had alignment that we were going to embark on this process in, uh, I guess, late January, early February of 2020. And, uh, but, you know, I say 2020 has been unique for everybody. For us, uh, we, did, we did a couple new things. We bought a couple of companies over Zoom. That was unique. Uh, we rebranded the company over Zoom. That was unique. Uh, we we uh, ramped up our, our product and engineering spending and did a ton of user research, proprietary research over Zoom. That was unique. So there's been a lot of unique things we've done. Um, I give huge credit to our, our CMO and our entire marketing team and really to the rest of the management team and, and their leadership. Uh, it was a great process. Uh, had some great partners who helped in the rebranding process. And you know, CBS Radio was known, but there was this association with CBS, and sometimes that was confusing. Um, Intercom was known in certain circles as a really powerful sort of great partner company, but wasn't known as broadly. We also had the Radio.com app, which we had taken from the CBS acquisition as well, and consumers were kind of wondering about that. You know, there were some people at the time who said, oh, you're going to rebrand because you don't like the word radio. Actually, the other way around, I wish I could have kept radio in the name of the app, but .com was what consumers in our research said, but, but that's old, right? An app called .com, and you've seen other brands deal with that. So we wanted a brand that could unify the positioning. I didn't want a plus. I think that was really important to me. Like, it's one thing if you're a, a legacy media company with a long brand history and you're launching a new app that's a direct consumer you know, experience for you, you have to put plus on it because that means a thing. But the last thing I wanted was a company brand and then to have to introduce this plus thing. So we wanted the name of the app to be the same as the name of the company. We wanted something that said audio, but also said more, I think was really important. So you know, we say we're unapologetically audio. We do video. We've got a great partnership with Twitch. We're doing all kinds of sports content on that platform, sports betting content. Uh, we do have great live events business. But at our core, we're really about audio, and that's different. And so that shows up in the name. Um, and look, it's a, it's a great brand. I think it ended up in the right way. It's really interesting because it is a new brand. It's a new manifestation for our company. But again, we are we're literally one of the founding companies of audio. I mean, our, you know, our stations were first and second commercial radio stations in the U.S. 
Um, FAN was the sports, first sports station in the U.S. Uh, that, that is now part of our portfolio. These news brands have been around for a long time. Some of the podcast pioneers now sit in our portfolio. Even FM, which, uh, which in the 60s was sort of the podcast of its day, if you will. It was this new thing that was a playground for innovation and audio. Um, you know, part of our company was a pioneer in FM about 50 years ago. So the company's had a lot of innovative moments. And I think now we have a brand that really pays homage to that while also saying, all right, we wrote the last 100 years of audio. Now how do we write the next 100 years of audio? Because we know there's going to be consumer demand. We know there's going to be advertiser demand. Now we get to play in the middle of that. And I think that's really fun. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite stories observing the last, you know, 15, 20 years is this evolution of audio. And we've watched some other genres of the media really decline. I mean, the magazine business is a brutal business and they never really figured out, you know, how to navigate transformational digital change. The newspaper business also suffered, I think, a little bit better in some respects. The Guardian in particular, globally, and now the New York Times, Times following suit with subscription-based Also leaning revenue. into audio. Yeah, no, very much so. Yeah, their, their uh, daily podcast is one of their sh- shining stars. Give us a look, just as we start to wrap, J.D., into the Odyssey crystal ball. If we sit back down a year from now and do uh, a second episode together, what do you think we'll be talking about? So I think there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, interestingly, now that we're really fully beginning to exit COVID, I mean, we still have Delta out there. You know, who knows what, what Lambda and Mu are going to look like. But, but as, as, as things open up and as marketers come back online, hopefully these uh, supply chain disruptions, all these things are transitory, right? And interestingly, we're seeing momentum in the broadcast business. We'll start there. So we're seeing pricing momentum, for example, in the broadcast business, which I think a lot of people are probably surprised to hear. But there are a lot of folks that want to come back on, and that marketplace is growing from a pricing perspective, at least at the premium end, which is where we pay. So I think we'll be talking about the continued recovery of broadcast and not just, hey, can we get back to 2019, but can we get back better than 2019 to steal somebody else's line? And that includes more data-infused campaigns, more attribution, more omni-channel campaigns, more fluidity-type deals where uh, advertisers are, are working with us to fulfill across a number of inventory segments to meet their campaign objectives. Um, for us, COVID's a pull forward of those kind of behaviors. And we've been lo- working for a long time on the systems and the processes to handle that. And we've really accelerated that. And so far, we're seeing some uptick in the market. So I think we'll be talking about people surprised about broadcast durability and sophistication. And that, that's important. Obviously, what most people want to talk about is the growth from a digital podcasting and social audio perspective. And I think you will continue to see rapid acceleration there. Things we're doing to innovate the listening experience like we've done in the past and we're going to continue to do more of. I think that's really important. Um, Things we can do to innovate the ad experience, how radio is measured using Nielsen um, uh, people meters, uh, creates a different type of product and measurement structure than how we measure digital. And so we can change those clock structures. And we and others have been thinking about how to do that and, and how to do that in a way that services both the listener and the advertiser, because we shouldn't assume that what works for one speaker works for the other speaker. So we're spending a lot of time there. And then on the podcast side, I mean, the innovation here is unstoppable. We just uh, uh, have announced and are about to release in a couple of weeks our first feature-length fiction podcast, which we did in partnership with Endeavor Content. Uh, Chris Corcoran and our teams at Cadence 13 developed this new uh, franchise. We're going to do two of them this year, which are legitimately feature link podcasts. Kieran and Shipka is in the first one from Mad Men, a uh, show that I know is near to both your and my uh, hearts. Um, we got some great folks in our, our second show coming later this year. Um, and so there's a lot of innovation going on there. Uh, on the Pineapple side, they released a show called The 11th, which is a new news magazine idea, but for podcasts. So every month is a different collection of storytellers and a different episode. Uh, you should check out the one last month on the Fuji's. Really great piece of tape. And so there's a lot of innovation going on in content formats. And obviously, we talked about in ad formats, in technology that allows advertisers to buy seamlessly, better measurement, et cetera. So that, that will continue to evolve. And then, you know, social audio was sort of the big thing this year. And that's a convergence of live and podcast in a way. And I think you'll continue to see innovation happening there. And that story will be around other players who are leaning into the space. Facebook, obviously, is adding podcasts to their platform. We're a partner there. Um, Google and Amazon are adding other types of audio to their devices. We're a, a beta partner there in many of those initiatives. And so the prediction I know will come true is audio is a durable media. It's going to be around for the next 100 years because consumers demand it. People want to listen to other people, and they want to listen to curators and creators. 
uh, we will play in that ecosystem because we live really at the intersection of great content and great technology and our histories in, in both. And those who know how to create the best, most engaging content are always the ones who win in media in some way, shape or form. Back to your examples a minute ago, right? Um, and look, you know, we've got 170 million fans across the country who listen to our stuff on a regular basis and, and we want to give them more of what they want and we want to make it easier for advertisers to participate in that, in that ecosystem. So I think, uh, you know, as you said, we're sort of on the next, I don't think of it as kind of the, the great age or the next great age of audio. It's really the sort of the second century of audio. And the great thing is it's not just us, right? There's a lot of big, well-funded companies in the space and we welcome that because that drives innovation and speed that's good for the whole industry. Well, great, great story, JD. And we're so proud to have the opportunity to partner with Odyssey and work with you and your team. Uh, I'm proud to be one of those 170 million listening on a daily basis. Grateful for that, Matt. And uh, this has been a great conversation. Truly a great mind, JD. You absolutely belong here. And I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. I hope you have too. Thanks, Matt. I thought the word mind was going to have to do all the work today, but, but I appreciate you leading us through it. And uh, it's great to be partnered with you as well. Mm-hmm.